0: Well, not really related to the sermon, but has anybody been watching the Olympics so far? I don't know what it is. When the Olympics come on, I find myself totally enthralled in sports that I don't even understand or really care about. Like, I got really into a handball game yesterday. I don't know how to play I don't understand it. Um, and uh, just get sort of wrapped up in the Olympics and in all these people. Can you, I, I? What I can't imagine is working so hard for four years to then have, like, a 20-second race. And if you don't do well, then you're done. Like, you, you trained all this, and you went to Japan. And I heard a comic once talk about um, uh, the Olympics. It was during the Winter Olympics, but still. He, he was saying, you know, the, the real problem with watching the Olympics is all these people look so good, and then they're all, like, in these races, like, a second or two apart from each other. You know, what we really need in the Olympics, this comedian said, is a control group, right? Like what we really need is like in the middle of the diving, we'll just send up like Jim from accounting, <laughs> put him up on the high board and let him try to do some flips so we can all see exactly how bad it would be and how good these people look, um, uh I, so i've always thought about that when the olympics come on now what we need is we need a control group we need susan a nurse to go out on the skateboarding park and see how she does and then we'll really know how good these people are um so if you're if you're not watching the olympics uh, i i find it to be a lot of fun a lot of fun keeping track of that stuff um that has nothing to do with what i'm about to talk about and i just <laughs> wondering if anybody's thinking about the olympics here our text comes from matthew 16. How many of you can remember school field trips? Did you did you do field trips? I always loved field trips because you didn't have to do real class. You'd pile <laughs> on a bus and you'd go somewhere, normally like a zoo or a museum or some historical site. And uh, the, the idea was that you would learn differently because you were in kind of a different context. Or at least that was the pretense. I think sometimes teachers just didn't want to teach either. It was a nice day off for everybody. Right, But I can distinctly remember a lot of my field trips. Even some of the like, local historical ones that were kind of dumb. I can remember a lot of field trips and what happened on those field trips. Be- because there's something about getting away and getting to a different context that opens you up to different things. In our passage today, Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip. Okay, That's what's happening here. This is one of those stories in the Bible where the geography is actually really important for the story. You have to pay attention. Because the text just says, now Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. And you say, oh yeah, 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 of course he came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. But no, he came, the Caesarea Philippi is not near anything that Jesus came by. And so to, to help you get this, I've got... Um, pictures in your bulletin you'll want to look at those pictures as a little bit as you get a sense of where this place is that Jesus takes the field trip a lot of these pictures are pictures that I took or other people took as some of you went on this field trip so the town of Caesarea Philippi you can see on the map is really really far north Jesus did most of his ministry in Galilee right around the Sea of Galilee but you can follow the Jordan River up to another little reservoir of water, and then Caesarea Philippi is above that. And if you look at the map, there's a number of rivers that sort of shoot off up to the north there. That is the area that will belong to the tribe of Dan in the Old Testament. Okay, and so there's these rivers that kind of come together to form the Jordan River. Jordan just means from Dan. Okay, because their water is flowing from the land of Dan. It's at the base of this big mountain called Mount Hermon. And um, uh, so it's this kind of imposing wall. I mean, we don't think about this, but Israel actually is snow-capped, has a snow capped part most of the year. Okay, you can ski on Mount Hermon. Uh, and so, so w- Jesus goes all the way up here. Okay, I mean, it is 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee and about 1,700 feet, 1,700 feet higher in elevation. So when, it, when the text says, oh, he stopped by Caesarea Philippi. No, he went way out of the way, uphill the whole time to get there. It was originally called Pana, uh, Panaeus, uh, Panaeus for, because it was at this place where they worshiped the Greek god Pan that was believed to have lived there. The town was given to uh, Herod the Great by Caesar Augustus. Herod renamed the town Caesarea, although he also made another town called Caesarea, so his son, to stop the confusion, added his own name. Philip added the son, the name Philippi. You get Caesarea Philippi. If you look on a map, you can see the sign in the bottom left. that says Benias. That's because there's no letter P in Arabic. And so they, they, they got rid of the Greek and Roman name, went back to the old, old name, but instead of Benias, it's Benias. You can see from the pictures, it's just rather... Uh, imposing rocky cliff with a small cave and several little grottos or worship areas cut into the stone. And what happens is, is, is this giant Mount Hermon, and the water that comes down off the mountain and the snow that melts on Mount Hermon ends up going into the mountain. In, in this particular mountain, there's these, there's these cracks and fissures, and so th- there's no like run down the mountain. The water goes into the mountain and then follows the rock along and comes out along the edge. And one of the places that it used to come out is in this cave that you see at Caesarea Philippi. Now, the rock has shifted since then, so it comes out a little north, a little bit south, a little bit below that, and, and you can still see water that runs off the mountain in the pictures, but, um, but in that cave, it used to run and run pretty hard. And so it looked like the water was coming right out of the mountain. So in going back to at least the Greeks, this place was considered an entryway to the netherworld, to the underworld. In other words, this was the gateway to Hades. Okay, so when you, when you want to leave this world and go to the spiritual world, this is the entrance and exit. So the belief was, this is where the gods come and go. This is like, this is like their, so why not worship them there? So that's why there was all these little spots cut in the rock, because it was this place of pagan worship. And uh, you, can see, you can see on the front page there, the cave, these little, these little grottos, even with some Greek writing on them, if, and then these spots where little statues that you used to come and worship used to be. Now, in the time of Jesus, if you turn the page over, you can see there was a whole city there, and then there were actually a number of old temples. You can see a temple to Augustus, to Pan, to Zeus. Then there were a couple other temples where all kinds of sacrificing was getting done. In other words, this is an incredibly pagan city. This is like the the pagan rival to Jerusalem. And so there's all these different gods being worshipped in this place. There there's really very little evidence of any kind of Jewish community in this region at the time of Jesus. But Jews didn't live here because it was such a pagan city. And so when Je- when the text says Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi, well, Jews really didn't go to Caesarea Philippi. It's not on the way. It's not near anything else that Jesus does. He's taking them on a field trip. You would only go there if you're Jesus, if you have a point, if you have a purpose. And I believe the purpose was to have this conversation because this becomes the backdrop. And we, we don't know exactly where Jesus was. Might he have been on a hill, kind of like these pictures where he could see these places? I, I think it's more likely he's in this worship area. He takes them right up to the cliffs. I'm sure if they're going, the disciples are whispering, hey, we're not supposed to be here. Where is Jesus taking us? Where are we going? Their defenses would be up. They would be on high alert as they went into this area. So Jesus takes them on a field trip, gets them emotionally primed by the place, and then he asks, who do people say that I am? Well, what people? These people have no idea who you are. We're in Caesarea Philippi. Back home, those people, they have what kinds of comments about you? Uh, that, that maybe you are a uh, prophet. These are all really prophets. John the Baptist would be seen as a current prophet. Elijah was a prophet who never died and was thought to be coming back. In fact, people thought maybe John the Baptist was Elijah. Maybe Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So, so everybody's in agreement that you're special. That God is speaking through you. But, but all of them are also in agreement that, that you're just a guy. You're just a prophet. Then Jesus asks the real question, the purpose of the field trip. And he says, who do you say that I am? That's the big question. Whatever everybody else says about Jesus, the real question that dominates your life, is going to change how you live, is who do you say that he is? So Peter spoke up. Peter often is the spokesperson for the group. And he says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, the chosen one, the, the promised one from the Old Testament. And he calls him the son of the living God. Now, son doesn't just mean child. In, in those days, uh, your, your son was your legacy, was your heritage. Your son carried on the family name, carried on the family business. Your son was seen as an extension of their father could do business on behalf of the father and so to say someone is a son is more than just a child it's saying you are from god you are part of god you are representing god you are carrying on god's family name and legacy interestingly here he says the living god too does that mean like not a not living god like maybe in light of Pan and Augustus and all these other gods that are being worshipped there, he, G, he, Peter's saying, no, 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 but our God is a living God, not like these other gods. So Jesus spoke a blessing on Simon because he says flesh and blood didn't reveal this to him. Okay, flesh and blood just means human beings. Anybody, nobody gave you the answer to this question. You didn't cheat on this exam, Peter. This God gave to you. So he changes his name. This is where Simon, his name was Simeon, probably in Hebrew. And in the Greek, he was called Simon. But here he gets the name Caphos in Aramaic. And you hear that name in the, in the New Testament. Uh, uh, Paul calls him Kephos, That was his day-to-day name after Jesus gave him this name. In, uh, in Greek, it's Petros. And uh, I even gave you that—that that at the bottom of the page there. It says, "You are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church." So, uh, this is one of those times where in English you don't quite get it. It's a pun, okay? It's a joke. Like you're—you're. You're, uh, if I was going to translate this into the very, like, very vernacular to try to capture this, I might say, "Your name is now Rocky, and on this rock, I will build my church." Okay, your name is it's the same word, rocky. Okay, in, in Aramaic, they probably said it's the exact same word. Your name is Kephos, and on this Kephos, I will build my church. So, so, don't miss the pun there. You're rocky, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus told a parable about how, how wise men built their house upon the Petros. Uh, Build their house upon the rock. Later, people uh, Paul will pick up on this metaphor and speak of Jesus as a cornerstone. That Jesus is the main cornerstone that you build your house on. Now look at those pictures again. Now imagine calling Peter the rock in front of a big rock cliff like that. Okay, he's not out in a field. He's looking at all these, and he's looking at all these temples. That are built on rocks. And he's saying. "Ah, Hey Rocky. You're the rock. And what does Jesus say even further? He said on this rock. I'm going to build my church. And what did he say? The gates of Hades will not be able to stand against it. Well guess where are you standing? At the gates of Hades. He's not just saying hell won't be able to stand against it. He's actually taken them. To the gates of Hades. To say all these other gods that are worshipped here, everything the world has to offer is not gonna be able to stand against against this church that I'm going to build. Jesus went on to say that he would give Peter the king the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Peter would have power of binding and loosing. That's what rabbis did. Okay, that's that's not a slavery term or a prison term. It's actually what the rabbis did. Okay, the question was like how much work is work on a Sabbath. Well, your rabbi would decide what what to bind and what to loose. Okay, what counts as work and what doesn't count as work? What you can how far can you walk and it's not work and then after that you are working. Okay, so it's interesting for Peter to get that command that he's going to bind and loose when if you read in Acts, Peter actually does that when the Gentiles are trying to decide like what they're allowed to eat and and he is part of the binding and the loosing process peter has a dream that plays an important role in understanding that we can eat bacon praise god for peter we can eat bacon now a lot of ink has been spilled wrestling with this passage because it's been kind of the focal point of the debate between catholics and protestants Uh, for catholics this passage could be looked at as the beginning of the papacy Okay, Peter is the first pope. He has the keys to the kingdom. He can bind and he can loose. He's what the church is being built on. Protestants have tried to fight that back by saying, well, but, but it's really not Peter that's the rock. It's really Peter's confession that he is Lord. That's what the church is going to be built on, is this confession. Well, I actually don't buy either argument. Okay, uh, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is building the church. And so it's not Peter's. So I don't think this needs to necessarily lead to a pope. But I also don't think that the natural reading of this passage is to say that his confession is the rock. After all, if that's the true, the pun doesn't make any sense. Right? You're Rocky and you're the rock. I think he is saying that the church is based on, is being built on Peter. Yes, on his confession, but on his leadership. And, and I think Peter is... Again, like he often does in the Gospels, representing the disciples, speaking for the group. And so I think both sides overstate their case. And I really think that uh, what's happening here is Jesus is saying that Peter is going to be the rock, that he is going to be crucial in building the church. And by the way, if you keep reading the passage, Peter doesn't look so great. Let me read a little bit further in the passage, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this should ever happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told all of his disciples, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus, from this point on, he starts teaching that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. But the rock pulls him aside. Rocky pulls him aside and says, hey, uh, you don't want to do that. But heaven forbid that you actually do that. And then, and then Jesus gives him a new name. Another new name. Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. And, and then, uh, just to add to the pun, by the way, this, this translation says hindrance. You're being a hindrance. You are a hindrance to me. But the actual Greek phrase is Stumbling block. Okay. In other words, Rocky, you're going to be the rock in which I'm going to build my church. Oh, but you're also being a stumbling block. You're the rock that's tripping me up here, too. Uh, I might make my own pun and say this is a rocky start to the ministry of Peter. See, Peter gets his, the identity of Jesus partially right, but he also gets it partially wrong. What he thinks is, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. But what he doesn't understand is the kind of Messiah Jesus would be. He doesn't understand the cross. Nor does Peter really want to pick up his own cross. Okay? He does not want to go through his own sacrifices to follow Jesus. He would have trouble. He would deny Jesus. But Peter would also really be a key foundation point for the early church. So Jesus takes him on this field trip. Right? And uses this context, uses this place to help Peter and the rest of the disciples start to wrestle with who they think Jesus is. And as I think about Caesarea Philippi and I think about the world we live in, I think there's a lot of comparisons. We live in a time where we worship athletes and teams, politicians and pop stars, my feelings and your triggered sensitivities. In the pagan world that we live in right now, where people worship all kinds of things, the question of the day is, who do you say that Jesus is? Because a lot of people see him as a prophet, a good person, a teacher. Many like his words, but don't really like the whole cross thing. And fewer like picking up their own cross. Like a lot of, I know a lot of Christians really like that Jesus died on the cross for them. Don't, don't really want to make any sacrifices for Jesus. Who do you say that he is? Because whether you like it or not, you know what the rock that Jesus is now building his church on is? You and I. Jesus is building this church, not me, not you. But he is building it on us and on our lives. And if we get the Jesus question wrong, then we're we're sand. We're not real rocky. And we will make mistakes and we will have problems. But if we keep coming back to Jesus as Lord and confessing who he really is, then I think that we will be a good foundation for Jesus to build a church right here in the midst of this community that has an impact. So may you confess Jesus as Lord and may you fully unpack exactly what that means. And... If Jesus needs to take you on a field trip, needs to do something in your life, have you meet somebody, take you somewhere so that you can learn that, may he do so. Amen.